Well, good morning, everyone. Okay, a couple of you are awake. Uh, you're probably still in your turkey coma, huh? Um, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Aaron, a teaching pastor here at Riverwood, and I'm really, really glad that you came and are worshiping with us on this first Sunday of Advent. I've been really kind of excited about this whole series and just this Christmas season. Uh, it usually takes me until about the third week of December when I'm finally in the Christmas mood. And this year, for the first time in a long time, I actually started playing Christmas music before Thanksgiving. I know I broke the rule, but man, when you're working on a Christmas sermon, it kind of is hard not to go and pay attention uh, to it. But I'm, I'm really glad you're here. Did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Okay, some of you did. Great. Uh, I did. I had a, a really, really good one. Uh, three, But, you know, it's kind of funny. Three days ago, we're celebrating Thanksgiving, you know, being thankful for the things that we have. And then the very next day, we go out and we buy all the things that we don't have. You know, it's like Black Friday is, is just playing. okay, maybe I'm not quite thankful enough. I got to go and get just a little more stuff. Uh, I know. I, it's usually for people to give gifts and presents. Uh, but Americans really turned out this year. I heard that $5.4 billion was spent just on Black Friday. That, that's not even Saturday, Sunday, and this whole Christmas season. $5.4 billion. I, I've discovered there seem to be about three different uh, approaches to Black Friday. Uh, there's the celebration approach. This is the people who get really, really excited. Like they go through all the ads, they make their plan. We're going to go to this store. We're going to go here, and you know they they get up early. They they're you know they're really really into it. Anyone here who's in the celebration crowd? No one's willing and brave enough to. Okay, thank you. Okay, good. All right. Then there are the people who okay they're going to participate, but they're not excited. Like they realize okay I really should go and take advantage of that. So they'll put up with it. It's more like enduring. Is there anyone here who's kind of in the enduring camp? All right, okay, I don't like this, but we're just going to go through it. Then there's the rest of us. There's me, who just completely ignores the day. Anyone in that camp? Okay, yes, we are the greatest. Uh, for me, it's actually a day to watch football. Um, although in the past few years, it's been painful, because as many of you know, I'm a Nebraska Cornhusker fan. And for the last five years, the Iowa Hawkeyes have continued to beat us, usually with a last second field goal, which happened yet again. So frustrating. But the Iowa Hawkeye fans, you're really happy, and I'm really glad for you, and I hope you really enjoy your bowl, because you kept my team from making it to a bowl. I'm not bitter. Uh, but many of you know that college football is a violent sport. Despite the advances that they've made in the, the pads and the helmets and the, way, the rules that they've changed, trying to make it as, as safe as possible, it's still common for a player to get injured during a game. In fact, in the Nebraska-Iowa game, uh, Nebraska's kind of star wide receiver, a freshman named Wandale Robinson, he'd been struggling a little bit with injury, and, and he ended up getting knocked out, and I think it was in the second quarter. And after halftime, he came back out in street clothes. Uh, his, his game was done because of injury. And it's, it's common for sometimes guys to have a, a season-ending injury. And occasionally, guys actually have an injury that, that, that ends their career. They're done with football forever. But it turns out that Black Friday is not just dangerous for uh, football players. It's dangerous for shoppers, too. You see, between 2006 and 2018, there were 12 deaths and 117 injuries. But, I mean, when you see videos like this, you can see why people get injured. Because it's all about, I got to get the product, I got to rush in, and in the process, some people can get hurt and trampled. So in 12 years, 12 deaths, 117 injuries. Now, there's a, uh, uh, a, a newsletter called The Hustle that parsed through this data, and they discovered that 70% of these injuries happen at a Walmart, all right? 70%. But before you start thinking, okay, I guess I'm going to avoid Walmart on Black Friday, 
majority of these happen in California and North Carolina. Why North Carolina? I don't know, but they have the highest per capita. Now, there's other places, New Jersey, Texas, but I want you to know, Iowa had zero incidents, all right? I guess you guys are pretty safe after your turkey coma, all right? You're, you're okay to be around. But when the hustle was parsing through their data, they basically celebrated that there were 12 deaths and 117 injuries. I, and I found myself really surprised by that. But they parsed through the data and they said there were almost every year about 97 million shoppers. So you take that across those 12 years, 2006 to 2018, and that's billions of visits to retail stores and only 12 deaths and 117 injuries. And so like, you're far more likely to get injured on the way to the store in your car than you are to actually you know, have something happen to you while you are shopping. But yet, that broke my heart to hear. Because to have even just one person die because they're arguing over a Barbie doll or, or a flat screen TV, like, it's ridiculous. That's insane. That is sad. And yet, for many of us, when we just heard that the, the statistics, that's just all they were. They were statistics. It, it just kind of floated by us. But, but those 12 people thought that when they went to the store, they thought the cost that they would pay was the sale price, not their life. I, I think we've kind of become numb to death. You know, it, it's all over our news. It, it's, it's in our video games. It's in our movies. It's in our TV shows. I, I mean, I, I watch all sorts of things, and I see all sorts of violence, and I just take it as entertainment. So when we hear 12 people have died on Black Friday, it just kind of rolls off our back. Oh, that, that's too bad. But what we forget is that death was not God's design. And so the loss of life is a sad thing. I think this is why Jesus, when he's standing outside the tomb of Lazarus, one of his good friends, he knows that Lazarus has died, but he's going to rise him from the dead. Jesus knows what he's going to do. And yet it still says, John eleven thirty five that Jesus wept. Why did he cry when he knew the miracle he was about to pull off? Because I think his heart was broken. Because Jesus was there at the beginning when they created everything. He knew death was not the design. And it broke his heart that humans went through death. You know what's also sad? <laughs> it's really sad when there's loss of life without dying. I, I think some of you know what I mean. The, the husband who loses his marriage because he had an affair. Or, or, or the, the pastor, the minister, the, the priest who loses their ministry and their marriage because of their behavior towards people of the opposite sex or even towards children. Just this week, I heard about a gal, a teacher in Texas, who was named Teacher of the Year last year. And she's now currently under arrest because of certain behaviors towards a male student. Those people, some of them actually probably wish they had lost their life because to lose their reputation felt like a loss. And that sort of loss is a sad thing. Every single one of you in this room has a reputation. All I have to do is go and ask your family, your friends, your, your co-workers, your classmates. If I ask them to describe you, the things that they say, that's your reputation. And so some of you, you're very intentional about the type of reputation you are building. Some of you, you want to be known as the star athlete. And so you're going to give your all at practice because that's the reputation you want. Some of you, you want to be the smartest person in the room. So you continue to read, you continue to learn, so that you have all this information to be able to spout out and give to people so that you can have that reputation of being super, super smart. Some of you, you, you want to be seen as very spiritual. 
So you read your Bible regularly. You, you attend every church activity you can. You post things on social media so that you can maintain that reputation. Others of you, you want to be known as a hard worker. So you go to work early. You stay late. You want people to see you're dedicated. That's your reputation. And some of you, you want to be known as financially wise. And so you make sure that people know the good deal that you got on Black Friday. Or that you were even good enough to avoid Black Friday. These are the reputations that we try to build. And we will work really, really hard to keep it. So we do certain things to get that reputation. But it also means we avoid certain things. Because if we do the wrong thing, the whole entire reputation can crumble. So we avoid those things. Because if we get caught doing that, the reputation crumbles. And now it feels like a loss. And it feels like a sad thing. But if you're a Jesus follower, it might cost you your reputation. Today we start an Advent series that we are calling The Cost of Christmas. But we are not going to talk these four weeks about the cost that Christmas makes on our, on our wallet or on our time. If you want to learn about that, go every Thursday and open up our Riverwood News and Notes. We're going to be walking through the tenets of Advent conspiracy, and we're going to be seeing how by spending less on Christmas, it actually allows us to give more of ourselves, to give more intentionally, to give more thoughtfully. And by doing so, we're showing love to those around us, and it enables us to worship more fully. So open up our Riverwood News and Notes every Thursday to, to have that conversation. But that's not the conversation we're having on Sundays. On Sundays, we're going to be looking at the cost that the first Christmas had on some historical people. We're going to see how the first Christmas cost Mary and Joseph their reputation. We're going to see how the first Christmas cost the shepherds potentially their livelihood. We're going to see the cost to the wise men, how it cost them their resources. But then ultimately, we're going to finish out our series by seeing how it cost Jesus everything. But through this series, we're going to see that it wasn't just the first Christmas that cost some people, that actually Christmas continues to cost us. That if you are choosing to be a Jesus follower, there is a cost to be his disciple. Jesus said in Luke, uh, I think it's Luke 14, he says that you need to count the cost to be his disciple. And so if you're here today and you're not a Jesus follower yet, I'm so glad that you came. Because there are some churches that are going to tell you, if you follow Jesus, everything's better. It's like Jesus is a genie. You just rub that gospel lamp. Jesus pops out and wants to give you a good marriage, uh, make, you know, give you a good home. He wants to give you a good income. And it looks like life's going to be great. And, and when you buy that sort of a gospel, then you feel let down when suddenly the doctor says you got cancer, when your spouse says I've had enough, when your boyfriend or girlfriend says I'm out of here. And then suddenly you feel like Jesus let you down. You, you, you bought the wrong thing. What you need to hear today is that God loves you. But he doesn't just call, call you to just a more comfortable life. He calls you to him because he is worth it. And I hope that today and all of this Advent series, you hear that loud and clear. God loves you. This might cost you, but it is so worth it. So if you brought a Bible today, would you open it up? to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, would you uh, just don't worry about it. It's up on the screen. You can just read along with us. But I'm going to encourage you, after our worship gathering, would you just uh, go back to our Give and Grow table? We've got two different copies of the, the Bible back there. I mean, two different translations. We'll find the one that will fit you best. Also, if you have a smartphone, we are totally fine with that here. So if you already have a Bible on your phone, feel free to pull that out. No one's going to accuse you of heading to social media. Use your, your Bible on your phone today. And if you have a smartphone but don't have a Bible on it, download one. That way, at wherever you go with your Bible, you, I mean, wherever you go with your phone, you always have a Bible with you. All right? 
we're going to be reading from Luke 1 today. Uh, before we do, I want to pray, and then I'm going to invite Tom and Christine Blessing to do our scripture reading this morning. So, Heavenly Father, uh, we just uh, want to pause right now before we read from the scriptures and ask for you to speak to us. Some of us are here because this is our church home, and we are ready and eager to hear from you. Some of us are here because we received an invitation, and we're not quite sure exactly what's taken place. God, each of us is at a different spot. Some of us are doing wonderful. We've had a great Thanksgiving. Others of us, this was, this was a rough weekend, and we're not too excited about this Christmas. But God, right now, would you just uh, bring comfort to those who are hurting, and would you also bring encouragement, but also for those who are just getting comfortable and life's becoming all about them, would you just disrupt that today? Would you help us to see the cost to follow you? And for those that are seriously considering to begin a journey of making Jesus the Lord of their life, to become a Jesus-centered person, that they would hear loud and clear that it's gonna, it might cost them, but Jesus, you are so worth it. So God, I pray that ultimately you be our teacher today, despite what I have tried to prepare and what I plan to say. That your Holy Spirit does what only you can do in the hearts and minds of every person that's listening. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so Tom and Christine are going to read for us Luke 1, uh, verses, oh, I kind of forget the verses, it doesn't matter. You can read silently along, you can read silently along as they read aloud. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the town of Galilee, called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, the descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled by his words and began to wonder about the meaning of this greeting. So the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have, been fa- you have found favor with God. Listen, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I have not been intimate with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And look, your relative Elizabeth has also become pregnant with a son in her old age. Although she was called barren, she is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary said, Yes, I am a servant of the Lord. Let this happen to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. All right, thank you guys so much. So we have this angel appearing to Mary. Uh, Many of you know this story. Uh, You're familiar with it. Maybe it's because you've been to church and you've heard it preached or, you know, you went to Sunday school as a kid and the story was talked about in December. Maybe it's just in your own Bible reading, but many of you are familiar with this story. But some people struggle with it because of these supernatural elements. Uh, some people struggle with the idea of an angel. Uh, you know, like, is that, did that really happen? It sounds like one of those mythologies, you know, it sounds a little bit made up. I mean, seriously, think about it. If you had someone come to you and say, I had an angel appear to me last night. You might be nice on the outside because you're from Iowa, but inside your head, you're going to be thinking, okay, maybe we need to be visiting some sort of institution here. We we struggle with it. But just because angel appearances are incredibly rare doesn't mean angels don't exist. We can't make the mistake that, well, I've never seen it. It doesn't mean that it's not true. 
I don't have time today to go into an apologetic about why angels are real, but they are. And this moment really did happen. For other people, they, they believe in angels. It's the other part of the story that makes them kind of stumble. <laughs> this whole idea of the immaculate conception, that, that the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary and somehow she was going to end up pregnant. Like, how in the world is this going to happen? And there's, you know, some people just like, oh, I don't know about this. And it just makes them a little uncomfortable. And, and so they, you know, just kind of wash the whole story away. Well, it really did happen. It, it's a historical fact. This angel Gabriel appeared and they end up, you know, Mary does end up pregnant with Jesus. But when this story often gets told and shared, what often gets heard is Mary's obedience. That, that's what gets emphasized. People look at that and go, wow, look at Mary. But what we don't always emphasize or realize is that Mary's obedience was going to cost her. And it was going to cost her her reputation. And in that day and age, your reputation was everything. Why was it going to be so devastating? You see, in, in that day and age, when a young man wanted to get married, he would usually be in his late teens, probably his early 20s, and he would see these young girls, 13, 14, 15, 16 years of age, and he would want to marry one of them. But he did not walk up to them and say, hey, I think you're cute. You want to go out on a date? He would approach her father. All right, so, so kids, if you think it's scary to talk to someone of the opposite sex, imagine going and trying to talk to their dad first, right? And you'd walk up and say, I would like your daughter's hand in marriage. And the father might say no, but most likely he'd say yes. But if he says yes, you now enter into a negotiation. You have to come up with some sort of price because the father can say, oh, but my daughter is so helpful. She does all, you know, helps my wife with all the laundry. She helps cook all the food. She helps take care of the younger ones. Ah, it would be a big loss to lose her. What are you willing to pay? And so they would negotiate out a price. And once the father and the groom agreed on something, then the daughter is brought in and a little ceremony is held. And at that moment, they are considered betrothed. Now, it's different than our engagement, where you just stick on a ring and you begin making these wedding plans. In their day and age, when you were betrothed, you were considered married. But you could not come together and live together until one year had passed. This allowed them to make sure that she wasn't pregnant, and that's why they were trying to get married. And it was also to allow the young woman to have a year to learn from her mom. Here's what it takes to run a household. Here's what you need to know as a wife. Here's what it's going to be like to become a mother. In the meantime, the groom is working, saving money, building a place for them to live in. And after one year, he would then come to get his bride, bring her to the house. They would enter into what's called the marital chamber, and there they would consummate the marriage, and they would then begin to live together the rest of that time. It was so serious, and it was they were considered married so much that if a groom died during that betrothment period, the bride would be considered a widow. And if the groom wanted to break this engagement, he couldn't just call it off, take the ring off, and throw it at her. He would actually have to put together a letter, a certificate of divorce, and serve it to her and treat her as if they were already married. So when Gabriel shows up here in Luke 1, that's where Mary and Joseph are at. The conversation between Mary's dad and Joseph has already taken place, but they have not gone to the wedding night. They have not consummated the marriage. So when Gabriel says, Mary, favored one, God has a plan. You're going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And Mary says, okay, if this is what God wants, I'll do this. But what you don't realize is that by her saying yes, by her obeying, it meant that in the eyes of the community, she and Joseph cheated the marital timeline. That they had come together before they were supposed to. 
And now in this Jewish community where your faith was the central part of the culture, it would mean that they were sinners. They, they could not be favored by God because they had a child outside of the marital timeline. So therefore, they're sinners, and this child was born in sexual immorality. And the whole community would whisper about them, would shun them, keep them on the outside. That's why Mary's obedience is such a big deal. Because by her saying yes, she's basically saying, I sacrifice my reputation. But it wasn't just Mary's reputation. It was also her fiancé's. If you know where the book of Matthew is, flip back to Matthew, just a couple of chapters uh, prior. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to see that the same cost applied to Joseph. Matthew 1, uh, verses 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I'm sure that when Mary appeared pregnant, she told Joseph, here's what happened. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, Joseph knows how babies are made. They, they, they don't happen just, you know, by accident. They, they, she had to have been with someone, which means she's been unfaithful, which means she's not going to be a good wife. So Joseph, he, he's got questions. I think he really cared for her. But he also knows, I, I can't put myself with her. Because if he takes her as his wife, everyone's going to assume he's the father. And so they're going to think that he's ungodly. And his reputation is destroyed. So to maintain his reputation, he decides to divorce her. Now, if he makes a public accusation against her of her unfaithfulness, points it out to the whole community, there's a risk. Because it means the community could stone Mary. In fact, back in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24 say this. That if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to, uh, to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Joseph knows the kid's not his. So he could make a public declaration of her unfaithfulness. And if the community leaders so then decided, they could decide to stone her. Now, it was very rare in Mary and Joseph's day, but it was possible. And I think Joseph really, truly cared for her. He didn't want to take the risk. So he decided to do this. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. I think he was just going to draft this letter, be really quiet, give it to her, and end it all. That way he could show compassion to her by letting her live, but at the same time, he could maintain his own integrity and reputation. But then this happens. Matthew 1, starting verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, 
until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, once you realize what Gabriel's announcement to Mary means, you have a greater understanding of what this dream now means to Joseph. That for him to obey the command of the angel, to take Mary as his wife, means the whole community is now going to think that Joseph and Mary broke the marital timeline and in sin and sexual immorality had this child and it would destroy their reputation within the community. Now maybe you're thinking, Aaron, you're blowing this a little out of proportion. Like, I, I've got, you know, a friend from high school. She got pregnant outside of wedlock. Or, you know, my, that happened to my sister. Or, you know, I've got this nephew. He got a couple of girls pregnant. But, you know, those kids, they're, they're loved. They're, 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 it's, it's normal. It's fine. No one thinks anything about it. I mean, surely, like, this would just kind of fade away, right? I wish that was true. But that's not what happened to Jesus. In fact, we know that's not what happened. Because in John chapter 8, Jesus enters into this conversation. It got to, to be rather heated. A uh, conversation with the Pharisees. And, and it starts when Jesus declares that I am the light of the world. And the Pharisees hear that and they're like, wait a second. If you're saying you're the light of the world, that means you're not. Like, your testimony's not true. It, it's kind of like when an athlete says, I'm the goat. I'm the greatest of all time. Everyone kind of shakes their head and goes, nah, you're just bragging. Let other people say you're the goat. Let other people, the, the sports commentators, the journalists, your, your competitors, your teammates, let them be the ones to declare you're the greatest of all time. But when you say it yourself, it, it, it's probably not true. That's what the Pharisees are thinking about Jesus. You, you say you're the light of the world, but your testimony is not true. Well, Jesus has a brilliant response. He says, you don't have to believe what I say. Believe what I do. Just, just look at the things I've done. <laughs> because Jesus had healed the sick. He caused the lame to walk, the blind to see. He raised the dead. He fed 5,000. I mean, he walked on water. Jesus had done all these amazing things that no one else could do. All they had to do was look at what he had done. But the problem was, Jesus had done some of those things on the Sabbath. To the, to the Jewish leaders, the Sabbath was the most holy day there was. Like On the Sabbath, every single week, you do not do any work. And for Jesus to do some work on the Sabbath, that was more evidence to them that he wasn't from God. Because if he was really from God, he'd observe the Sabbath. But the fact that he's working and healing people, not from God. So they don't believe what he says, and they don't believe what he does. And so in their mind, this guy's a threat to Judaism. Like, he's, he's ruining everything. So we have to eliminate him. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. So he points out, the fact that you want to eliminate me, the fact that you want to get rid of me, reveals that your father is Satan. Because Satan is against my father and against me, and so the fact that you're against me shows that your father is Satan. And this makes them furious. They're like, no, 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 no. We're the descendants of Abraham. We're, our father is Abraham. And Jesus is like, guys, if, if Abraham was really your father, you would believe in me, because Abraham would believe in me. No, your, your father is Satan. They get so mad that they lobbed this. John 8, verse 41. And they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now on the surface, it looks like they're saying, Okay, yeah, Abraham's our father, but really God's our father. But do you hear the dig? They're, they're saying, We were not born of sexual immorality like you. You see, Mary and Joseph, while today they're, they're venerated. The Catholic Church has made Joseph a saint. Mary's, you know, practically worshipped. But in Jesus' day, they were the couple that was whispered about in Nazareth. And as Jesus starts gaining some fame because of all the things that he teaches and all the things that he did, the rumor began to spread through Galilee. And eventually it reaches all of Israel, down to Jerusalem. 
So that as Jesus gets into this conversation, saying, I am the light of the world, they yell back, no, you're not, because you were born in sin. It means Mary and Joseph's reputation for their entire human existence got obliterated. No one believed that they truly were the godly couple they were. Why did God choose Mary? She was highly favored. She was dedicated to him. Why did God want Joseph to help raise his one and only son? Because he knew the kind of man that Joseph was. And yet the entire world did not realize it. They believed they were just a bunch of sinners. When you follow Jesus, it might cost you your reputation. You may know the truth about who you are, but the world outside may say some things about you. But he's worth it. I mean, look at Mary and, and Joseph. When, when Mary has Gabriel appear, when he says, here's what's going to happen, she has to know in her head, well, wait a second, that, that means everyone will think that Joseph and I were together before, oh no. And yet, she gets to the end and she says, may it be as you've said. She obeys, she surrenders, she submits because she's so godly. If this is what her God wants for her, she will obey. Even though it will cost her reputation because to bring in the long-awaited Messiah, it's worth it. And when Joseph has the dream, he, he, he ends up taking Mary as his wife, knowing everyone's going to think that he is the biological father, but he will know the truth. Why does he do it? Because the long-awaited Messiah, the one who's going to save the people from their sins, is coming into the world. He is worth it. And that's what you and I have to realize. I cannot sit here today and try to sell you a bill of goods that if you follow Jesus, everything will go perfect. Sometimes following God leads us into very dangerous places. Just ask the prophet Jeremiah. When, when Jeremiah gets called to follow God, to become a prophet, it says this in Jeremiah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Well, then I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, Behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a moment like that with God, I think I would be like ready to storm any hill. God's going to be with me, and man, what a call. And yet, the words that God put in Jeremiah's mouth were death and destruction. You see, the, the people at that time, the Israel was split into Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And God called Jeremiah to go to Judah and, and to call them out of their sin. Because they, in their hearts, they were wandering away from God. They're, they're doing some of the outward things. They look very religious, but in their hearts, they were not following God. So Jeremiah is calling them back to repent of their sin and to make God the center of their life. But they won't. There were other false prophets walking around going, don't listen to this guy. He doesn't know what he's saying. He is crazy. No, God loves you. You're doing great. Just keep going. And so then God starts having Jeremiah tell them, if you don't repent, God is going to send a warring nation to kill you. And those that don't get killed are going to be taken into exile. You must change your ways. People didn't want to hear it. I don't like hearing doom and gloom. And so this is what ended up happening to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 20. Now Pashur, the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. 
Then Peshur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. Chapter 1 sounds like Jeremiah is going to be one of the greatest prophets. What a reputation. But chapter 20, he's being treated like a criminal. His reputation absolutely obliterated. Sometimes when you say yes to God, it means there will be pain from the world. And Jesus warns us about it in his most famous sermon in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. To say yes to Jesus might mean pain in this world and this life. Now, please, do not make the mistake of thinking that if you express your political opinion and someone comes against it, that you're being persecuted for your faith. Do not tie your faith in Christ into your politics. I mean, obviously, your faith in Christ is going to help guide you in what decisions you make. But if someone comes against you because you have an R or a D next to your name and, and your registry, it doesn't mean they're, they're com coming against you because of your faith in Christ. This is about Jesus, not who you're wanting to vote for for president. At the same time, this does not mean that you have to walk into work with a grumpy look on your face and go, you're all going to hell. You don't have to be a jerk because if people come against you for that, they're coming against you because of your behavior and your attitude, not because of your faith in Christ. Instead, if you just go about seeking to love people like Jesus would love them, to live among them, to shower them with the, the fruit of the Spirit, with love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You just shower that upon them and they still revile you. They still hate you. They still think you're odd for God. So what? Because a human reputation is only for this world. It would be far better for the world to think you are crazy in this life and to have the joy of God's favor for the eternity than to have had the greatest reputation here to look good in the eyes of everyone else. And yet when you get to heaven, it turns out you were empty. Because you got so concerned about what everyone else thought of you here, you, forgot, you failed to think about what your Heavenly Father thought of you. He loves you. And what so much the world tries to pull you into is actually empty. It's like trying to drink salt water. It will not truly satisfy. Jesus is the living water. But you have to realize that when you drink of that cup, it might cost you. But it's worth it. And when you realize that Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he himself wasn't willing to do, it can be empowering. That, that when you realize that Jesus, the Son of God, set aside his throne in heaven to come down, to take on human flesh, to be born to a poor couple, to be born into a barn, to be placed into a feeding trough, to be at the lowest of all places, to go to the town of Nazareth was where they thought nothing could come out of. That's his path. He totally humbled himself because he did not come to build himself a good reputation. I mean, if anyone could have done it, it'd be Jesus. I mean, Jesus could have been known as a great carpenter. He could have been known as a really nice neighbor. I mean, he, he could have even become a really respected rabbi. But he did not come to build himself a good reputation. He came for you. He came for humanity. And that's why he was willing to allow people to revile him, to hate him, to even nail him to a cross. Because it was that path of humility that led to life for you and I. So if you're a Jesus follower, be ready. 
Please don't go and act like a jerk. But just be ready that as you love people, if they don't accept your faith, it's fine. You just keep loving them. You just keep praying for them. You just keep bearing their burdens. You just continue to be the kindest person they've ever interacted with. And if they hate you for it, so be it. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to follow him, to make him the center of your life. But I don't want you to do it blindly. I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking, oh, if I just follow Jesus, everything's going to become great. No, it might actually lead to some really hard days. But I'm telling you, it's worth it. He's worth it. Because when you surrender and you give your life to God, you might see God do the most amazing things through you. So it means you got to come. It means you have to surrender. It means you have to count the cost and be willing to sacrifice your reputation. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be those type of people. That those who are already Jesus followers, that they would just completely surrender themselves to you. And that if people at work or at school or in their neighborhood don't accept them because of their faith, that they would be okay with that. That they wouldn't try to adopt cultural adaptations to make themselves appear um, better, more acceptable, but that they would just keep their focus on you. But at the same time, God, help us to just treat this world with love and kindness and grace because that's what you gave to us. That even while we were still sinners, even while we were weak in our sin, even while we were your enemies, you, Jesus, came to die for us because you loved us so much. So, Father, help us to live with an outward orientation that we do not enter into these uh, relationships and friendships with people around us for what we get from it. Instead, that we would live oriented to give ourselves away. That we would give just as Jesus gave. We would love as Jesus loved. And we would live as Jesus lived. Because this world desperately needs you. So God, would you just help us to surrender our reputations? That as much as we're trying to build something, may we just be willing to surrender it to you. That today, we take our reputation and we lay it at your feet. And if you want to build us a great reputation, may it be for your glory. God, if, if our reputation is rough in the eyes of others because we follow you, and we just find a peace and contentedness in that, knowing that great is our reward in the life to come. So God, help us to uh, live fully surrendered lives, and may this Christmas season be the time that we take our faith to another level. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done for us. And it's in your name we pray to our Heavenly Father. Amen. I'd like to give you a chance to respond. For some of you, in your heart, you're saying, yes. Others of you, you're wrestling. It's not easy to think this could cost. But Jesus did it for us. And that's why we want to respond in prayer. We want to respond in song. And we want to respond with, communion, with the communion elements. If you're a first-time guest with us here at Riverwood, we celebrate open communion. Almost every single week when we gather, we remember what Jesus did for us on a cross. How his body was pierced, his blood was shed, and it was done for the forgiveness of our sins. He took our place. And so we celebrate that every single week. And so if you're a first-time guest and you are a follower of Jesus, you've made Jesus the center of your life, you know that the cross was in your place, then we invite you, come, worship with us. Take that bread, remembering this is Jesus' body. Take that cup, this is his blood, and you take that into you. Remember that his story is now part of your story. But if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, I'm just going to ask that you very respectfully, politely not go to these elements. Because far more important than some bread and some juice is Jesus. I encourage you to take this time to pray and ask God, is it true? Did Jesus really come down as a baby, really live a sinless life, and really go to a cross in my place? And if it's true, would you take this next moment to give your life to follow him?
to become a Jesus-centered person. But if you're already that Jesus-centered person, come. Let us celebrate the coming of Jesus. Let us celebrate his sacrifice on the cross. Let us celebrate that he sacrificed a reputation for us. Let us come and do this in remembrance of him.